Part Three, Chapter Two of the Uttermost Star. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Uttermost Star and Other Gleams of Fancy by Frank W. Boron. The Four Idols. We are all idolaters. It is in the blood. Race memory is a wonderful thing. Old Bruno lies sprawling there on the mat. The children can pull at his ears. The kittens can play with his tail. He takes no notice. He blinks and bears it. What is he dreaming about as he lies there dozing with his nose resting on his paws, the very picture of tameness and domesticity? Jack London says that a dog only has one dream. He is back in the forest primeval. He is dreaming of the old wolf days, the days when his ancestors were fierce and wild, the days when every mouthful of food was won by ripping and slashing, by the stern authority of tooth and fang. He is a wolf yet in the soul of him, a wolf with all his wolfishness under severe and galling restraint. And so I say that, after the same fashion, we are all idolaters. We may not now worship Thor and Woden, Freya and Tyre, at least under those names, but we have our idols yet. Francis Bacon, in a passage which Macaulay regarded as among the very greatest and most influential contributions ever made to literature, charged us with worshipping four, and he named them. Beware, he said, beware of the idols of the tribe, Beware of the idols of the cave. Beware of the idols of the marketplace. Beware of the idols of the theater. Bacon was concerned with these counterfeit divinities as the enemies of pure reason, the foes of accurate thought, the perverters of sound judgment. But we need be bound by no such limits. 1. There is the idol of the tribe. It is the contagion of the crowd, the tendency to applaud when the multitude applauds and to hiss when the people hiss, the disposition to do as everybody else does. A recent traveler speaks of a certain island upon which he came in the course of his voyagings. It was a perfect paradise. Its climate was of the softest, its vegetation the most luxurious, its flowers the most beautiful and fragrant. Its birds are the most exquisite and gorgeous plumage. The inhabitants seemed, on first acquaintance, to be gentle and kindly. But, to his horror, he quickly discovered that the people cherished the most hideous and revolting superstitions and practiced the most frightful and abominable cruelties. No individual member of the tribe could defend these horrible proceedings. Indeed, each individual consulted separately, condemned, and deplored them. Each trembled lest he should himself one day fall a victim to their insatiable demands. Yet the thing went on. It had always been so. It had never been challenged. Everybody on the island submitted to it. Nobody thought of questioning its continuance. Each was the victim of all, and unwittingly, and unwillingly each helped to tyrannize all 
here then is the idol of the tribe one has not to go to the south seas to find it why do we dress as we do one way this season and another way next season why do we dress one way the chinese in another way and the red indians in still another way who ordains these arrangements both as to general outline and particular style we obey the idol of the tribe here are two brothers oliver and godwin peake engaged in conversation they are of course george gissing's creations that i may borrow them from born in exile oliver was going out his silk hat a hat of the very latest fashion lay with his gloves upon the table what is this thing inquired godwin with ominous calm as he pointed to the piece of headgear a hat i suppose replied his brother you mean to say you are going to wear that in the street and why not can't you feel burst out godwin that it's a disgrace to buy and wear such a thing disgrace what's the matter with the hat it's the fashionable shape godwin turned contemptuously away but oliver had been touched in a sensitive place and was eager to defend himself i can't see what you're finding fault with he exclaimed everybody wears this shape everybody replied godwin with withering disdain everybody how you can offer such an excuse passes my comprehension have you no self are you made like this hat on a pattern with a hundred thousand others now what in the world is this that we have unexpectedly discovered in listening to two brothers as they discuss the hat that lies upon the table it is nothing less than a resurrection of the baconian philosophy for see everybody wears this shape pleads poor oliver everybody have you no self demands the angry godwin it is godwin's way of charging his brother with being a worshipper of the idol of the tribe now if the idol of the tribe threw the hateful glamour of his superstition only over hats and gloves skirts and blouses nothing would have induced me to meddle with it but unfortunately his spurious divinity aspires to preside over much more serious things for like mantles morals are largely a matter of fashion succeeding generations says a great historian change the fashion of their morals with the fashion of their hats and their coaches take some other kind of wickedness under their patronage and wonder at the depravity of their ancestors for centuries we tolerated slavery the whole thing was fraught with anguish and shame but then everybody did it and because everybody did it no one troubled much about it each worshipped secretly the idol of the tribe i sometimes fancy that even in our churches the idol of the tribe is worshipped more often than we think here is a great evangelistic service the hearts of men are strangely stirred each person feels that if he were alone in the universe he would become a christian but he is not alone the place is crowded the last hymn is sung the people stream out into the street there is chatter and laughter and noise the sacred impressions are soon forgotten 
everybody does it the idol of the tribe has secured his costliest oblation at the door of the sanctuary two there is the idol of the cave the cave is the home there the man is monarch of all he surveys an englishman's home is his castle in designing it in constructing it in furnishing it he thinks of nothing but its comfort he will make everything as congenial as agreeable as snug as it can possibly be made and so far all is well nobody can find fault with him but our philosopher is afraid that he may carry his craze for comfort a little too far for a man is more than a mere cave dweller he has a mind he has a heart he has a soul he needs not only things but thoughts not only furniture but faith he is a thinking animal an emotional animal a believing animal whether he means to do so or not he will find himself providing himself with a small stock of convictions he may do it deliberately and systematically or he may do it casually and absent-mindedly but he will do it it is a race habit and the danger is that unless he is very careful he may select the articles of his faith on the same principle on which he selects the articles of his furniture he will gather together a few agreeable conclusions he will provide himself with a comfortable creed he will fit himself out with a neat little stock of congenial beliefs and then he will rub his hands lie back at his ease and congratulate himself on his shrewd discernment and excellent taste this is the idol of the cave beware of it says bacon he would have me to know that i cannot select my conclusions as i select my chairs i cannot pick and choose a few beliefs as i would pick and choose a few bedsteads bacon says that i should cultivate the habit of distrusting my agreeable conclusions whenever i find myself believing what it is pleasant to believe i must carefully investigate the matter it may be that i am worshipping the idol of the cave it may be that i believe this thing just because it is nice to believe it i am to suspect my agreeable conclusions to suspect them not necessarily to reject them bacon is too wise a guide to counsel me to reject a conclusion simply because it is so attractive as a great christian he knew as well as i do that some of the things that are most credible are the things that are the most delightful we believe them and find it heaven to believe them but we do not believe them because they are so captivating only a stoic an ascetic a misanthrope would ask me to reject a conclusion because it is so charming to adopt such a course would be not to worship the idol of the cave but to fall prostrate before a still more hideous god bacon would never encourage such idolatry suspect your agreeable conclusions he says do not reject them but overhaul them analyze them verify them confirm them three there is the idol of the market 
marketplace. The marketplace was a great place in Bacon's day, a world that knew nothing of our modern ways of advertisement and swift communication got over its difficulties by bringing everything to the marketplace. And the marketplace is a good place. God has built his world very largely on a commercial basis. Barter and sale are the essence of life. The marketplace is for money-making, and there is nothing but good in the making of money as long as the money is made in the marketplace. The rivalries of commerce have sharpened the wits of the race. The desire of each man to provide a better article than his neighbor has prompted a hurricane of invention and discovery. There are, says Dr. Alexander McKennell, two services which wealth may render to society. The pursuit of it may make strenuous men. The employment of it may make generous men. He who tries to gain what he may liberally use will become both strong and noble through the discipline. Here, then, is the sanction and glory of the marketplace. But the making of money must be kept to the marketplace. That is the significance of the story of the cleansing of the temple. Jesus, we are told, went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. And why? Is it not good to buy and sell, to exchange coin, to offer doves for sale to those who need them? It is in the marketplace, but not in the temple. Jesus was protesting against the commercialization of that which ought never to be commercialized. He was hurling out of the temple the idol of the marketplace. This stone image of a god, is it a good thing or a bad thing? You say it is a bad thing, but was it a bad thing in the quarry? Is it bad, that is to say, in itself, or has it been made bad by the hands of bad men? These coins. Are they good or bad? It depends on the use to which they are put. As soon as you introduce the commercial spirit into something outside the marketplace, you are in trouble. What about the commercialization of sport? Is not sport a good thing? But the introduction and rapid development of the professional spirit has largely been its undoing. Is it not a striking thing that the Puritans, who condemned almost every form of recreation and enjoyment, kept race horses? Cromwell did. He thought that the matching of horse against horse was one of the most stimulating forms of enjoyment, and that the opportunity of meeting his friends on the turf was conducive alike to physical and intellectual recreation. What has reduced horse racing from this high pinnacle to the plane on which it stands today? The answer is obvious. We have commercialized that which did not lend itself to commercialization. Or take politics. Are not politics a good thing? But when Sir Robert Walpole waves his hand toward the members of the House of Commons and exclaims, all these men have their price, we feel that the lowest depth of degradation has been sounded. The thing has been commercialized. It is the worship of the idol of the marketplace. As soon as you commercialize a good thing, whether it be a temple, a football field, or a parliament, you degrade it. As soon as you commercialize a bad thing, you perpetuate it. Could our fathers have borne so long with slavery 
and could we have borne so long with the liquor evil but for the vested interests involved beware says bacon of the idol of the marketplace four there is the idol of the theatre now to understand what bacon means we must glance at the theatre as it existed in bacon's day the drama was then a very primitive affair and among the most notable respects in which it differed from the drama of to-day stood the fact that there were no actresses and why were there no actresses why were women prohibited from appearing upon the stage why were the feminine parts all played by boys if we can solve that problem we shall catch just that subtle element in bacon's thought that led him to speak of the idol of the theatre the fact is that those elizabethan pioneers of the modern drama thought that women are so naturally so sympathetic so intense so fervidly emotional that the very process of projecting themselves in imagination into the personalities which in their stage parts they represented would leave some permanent impress upon the individuality and character of the actress they felt that women would become affected tainted with unreality and spoiled beware then says our great english philosopher beware of unreality does not the very word hypocrisy mean the playing of a part it is essentially a stage word beware of the idol of the theatre once more our philosopher would apply the warning particularly to thought beware of pretending to accept conclusions that are not really your own beware of pretending to reject conclusions that in your secret soul you acknowledge there are two kinds of hypocrites there are the people who pretend to be a great deal better than they are they are the minority and there are those who pretend to be a great deal worse than they are they are the majority there are those who pretend to be christians and are not and there are those who pretend not to be christians and are both are playing a part they are indulging in an affectation they are tainting their souls with unreality they are guilty of hypocrisy bacon would urge both of them to give up their play-acting beware he would say of the idol of the theatre five miss kingsley tells of a certain medicine man in west africa who found himself at death's door he applied all his herbs and spells and conducted all his well-worn rites before his idols without any effect at last he wearied of his hocus-pocus and took his idols and charms down to the seashore and flung them into the surf and he said now i will be a man and meet my god alone the greatest hour in a man's life is the hour in which he spurns the idol of the tribe the doing of what everybody does the idol of the cave the doing of what is agreeable to him the idol of the marketplace the doing of what pays him best and the idol of the theatre the doing of that which does not reflect his real and genuine self and stands an honest sincere and penitent idolater in the august presence of the holiest of all End of part three chapter two